Good morning, everyone. Oh, it's a pleasure to see you all. It just started raining, by the way, so it's quite delightful coming down as all those praises were rising up to the Lord. So praise him for his, his creation and the beautiful things he's made. And I love the variety in nature, and you have the variety of every day. Um, there's no ordinary days. Everything is just a miracle from God. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the world that you've made, that you are the creator. You're the one who sustains us. You provide for our needs. And uh, thank you for providing the need, our need for a savior, that you've sent Jesus to come and to live amongst us and to reveal your glory and your love and to demonstrate that through his death on the cross and his resurrection and the new life that we have available to us through him. Thank you for the forgiveness and the hope and the healing, the restoration, the deliverance, your awesome power to save that we see through him. And thank you that we are partakers of the divine nature by your grace, that we can be one with you, uh, that we can be part of the body of Christ. It's just uh, beyond belief. But we believe it, Lord, because you've said it. I pray that you would give us hearts to believe your word and to apply it to our lives daily and that you strengthen us in our faith. And that we'd be bold to believe and walk in the truth that you've revealed in Jesus' name. Amen. I was reading through G.K. Chesterton's book, The Everlasting Man, recently. And he mused over what you would expect to see if you ventured into a cave of prehistoric man that was commonly portrayed in the comics uh, in his day in the early 20th century. And He's like, they're always portrayed as like a, you know, a grunting brute with a club who clubs the woman and drags her off to his lair by the hair. And he says, I can't figure out why the men are so rude and the women are so refined in these caricatures. But anyway, that aside, he says, what you find is not, so let's go to reality. If you, if you were to look in the cave, you don't see a collection of clubs with notches in them of how many people they have clobbered. They wouldn't have a lineup of female skulls, all like cracked eggs that they were collecting. He says, when the light shone on the recesses of those dark places, you see brilliant colors, artistry of animals, paintings. This is not what he expected to see based upon the caricature. And he asserted that art is the signature of man. That it's unique, that you do not find this impulse of art anywhere else in nature. And how people are really almost like strangers in the world compared to every other living thing. That we write poetry, we extract gold from the earth, that we, we play golf and we pay taxes and buy matching outfits and vote in elections according to conscience. There's nothing like that in the the world apart from mankind and how distinct man is. And then his big point is how distinct Jesus is from all other men, that he is God made flesh. So we'll be in Genesis 1 27. If that's true, if art is the signature of man, then man is the signature of a living God, the creator who has made us in his image, not of this world. Genesis 1 27 is where we will begin. And just to recap, we started Genesis last week where in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He said, let there be light. There was light. He said it and it was so. He divided the light from the darkness. He divided the day from the night. He divided the waters 
on the earth, from the waters above the earth and the atmosphere. He divided the sea from the dry land. And at his voice, the earth brought forth these plants and herbs and trees with seed in themselves to bring forth according to their own kind. He created the sun to rule by day and the moon to rule by night and gave the stars for signs, seasons, days, and years. And he caused the sea to teem with sea creatures and uh, land dwelling creatures, birds in the sky, all bringing forth according to their kind. Then he created man in his own image, man who was different from all the other animals and plants that he had made. And everything God's made is special, but man is exceedingly more special because he is made in the image of God. I find family history really interesting. I'm, I'm interested to hear like when my grandpa would be talking about his childhood or where his father was from and what they did. There's a, there's a natural interest there because I'm related to him. And has it ever occurred to you that your interest in man's origins and even family history is because God created us to think to want to discover who we are and why we're here. Not so much on a biological level and not so much even a family tree, but on a spiritual level down to the soul that he gave us because he breathed into Adam a living soul. He made him more than a body. And God wants to reveal to us more than what animals can comprehend. So we might know him that we might recognize all he's done in creating us and choose to trust him, choose to believe in him. And God, he identifies himself as our creator. Will you identify as his created? It's really the question that faces us as we go through this passage. Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And the flow of this passage is similar to the beginning where there's a general statement and then there's specifics, more, uh, more details added later. Mankind began with one man, Adam, created in the image of God. The second half of chapter two, we'll talk about how woman was taken out of man. The Bible is very clear about men being male, women being female. Biologically speaking, we know that in the nucleus of every cell in the body, males have an X and a Y chromosome. Females have two X chromosomes. And when someone's pregnant, you have that choice from 18 to 22 weeks. Do we want to know what the sex is? And you can have that ultrasound to see. And most of the time, determine with accuracy, uh, visually, if that child is a boy or a girl. Um, I, lo I love the moment in Toy Story 3. Perhaps I'm showing my age, but I had kids. And uh, that moment where uh, Ken meets Barbie for the first time, I thought that was amazing because they're like all, oh, they're just like quite taken with each other. And there's this moment where they're like, when I look at you, doesn't it feel like we were made for each other? Oh, because they said it at the same time. And, and it's funny because it's true that Ken was made two years after Barbie in 1961 by Mattel because they made Barbie and they go, well, let's make a, the guy too. So they made one of each. And, uh, Males and females of the same kind designed by God with the capacity to reproduce after their kind, like plants and animals and land dwelling and sea dwelling creatures. 
And the way that God established things are the way they remain because he is unchanging and he is good. And he commanded them after blessing both males and females. He said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So he gave people dominion and rule over the animals and over this planet. Mankind was given authority and stewardship by God over all that he had made. And really as God's chosen representatives on earth made in his image that we are to govern well by his grace. Really looking to him to know how to do that, right? Because the things God asks us to do on our own, we, we fail to do. Genesis 1:29. and God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seeds. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. God created the heavens and earth, really the earth to possess and to produce everything we need to live and flourish, to survive. It's not like God just says that they'll be able to eke out a living here. No, we can thrive and reproduce and grow and subdue the earth um, to have charge over it. Man and beast were created with the dietary requirements all met by fruits and vegetables. As we see here that they were vegetarians. There was no death at that time. And this is really at odds with the Darwinian survival of the fittest and natural selection that requires much death to produce anything good. God looked upon all that he created and saw that it was very good. He made it very good from the beginning. And as we'll see, when he created man from the dust of the ground, he made trees with fruit on them. He made everything mature. He didn't, Adam didn't begin as a zygote. He, he was a man from the beginning. And so the universe, God made it as it is expanding outward. It didn't necessarily come from one point. And that's why um, when you think about the idea of the big bang, that it all came from one small point, as we've seen that the, the universe is large and it's expanding and we think it came from one place only, the further we see, the older it must be. But God made it as it is, enormous and expanding, because he just did that. He is God and so powerful in every way. Now, Adam, he didn't have any of the genetic defects that we can be predisposed to. Uh, conditions or ailments passed down to us. You see that in uh, animal breeds, especially purebred dogs, where there's a propensity for a certain illness, like a hip problem or an ear problem, an eye problem. Now imagine if you were scanning or copying a document from an original. And even if the machine's working perfectly, if you use the copy as your new original, at, over time, it's not going to be as clean. It's not going to be as clean as a copy as the first original. And that's what happens with people. That's what's happened to the human genome, where there's been a bit of loss of data. But when Adam was created, there was no pesticides, no toxic waste, no smog, no pollution, no mining or transport, no litter in the lakes or seas. And everything God created was good. And that's pretty good to think about, right? A, a place that was idyllic. It was perfect for mankind to live. And, and it was very good. 
and man was blessed to direct it according to God's wisdom, according to his purposes. So evening and morning completed the sixth day. Moving on to chapter two. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it, he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. In six days, God created the heavens, earth, and all that is in them. And having completed that, it says he rested the seventh day. He blessed the seventh day. He sanctified it. That means to set it apart for his purposes. And one observation I have from these passage, this passage is how God is the source of all life and blessing. Notice what he blessed. It says he blessed the living creatures he created. He blessed man that he created. He blessed the seventh day. And I, we can say, you know, bless you, or that was a blessing. But what does that actually mean in the NASB topical index? It says to pronounce the bestowal of benefits such as abundance, fruitfulness, success, prosperity, and longevity of life upon someone or something. Man is able to bless God through worship, thanksgiving, and praise as a response to prior blessing from God. So God is blessed and God blesses. Having been blessed by God, we can also bless God. And God chose to set apart the seventh day because it was a day of rest. His work being completed. This may shock you, but work and rest are both good. Both of them are good things. We can see work as kind of like our reluctant duty. The dues we pay to rest. Like I've got to get my work done. Then I can do something that I'd much rather do. And we can forget that we, we want to enjoy the fruit of our labor but fruitfulness comes from God. Work comes from God. The ability to do work is from God. And God was not weary like we can be. He didn't relax because, you know, I've earned this. He had earned this rest and he was going to embrace it to the full. Work is more than what we do to make money. It's really how we serve God. That's what work is. And God made us to work. God works himself. Jesus worked. Turn to John 9, starting in verse 1. Because we can think, uh, work, it's a drag. Work is something to be avoided. But work is good. God did it. He does it. He works in and through us. John 9, verse 1. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. The disciples were correct to know that this man's blindness um, or sin was the cause of blindness and sickness. Uh, but they were mistaken to see a blind man and deemed it God's judgment for his sin. Because we live in a world that's tainted by sin. A fallen creation. And Job's friends, they made the same error that people can make to this day. Where they assumed suffering means you've been sinning. 
And that wasn't the case in Job's case. And it wasn't the case with this man. The disciples assumed it had to be this man or his parents. That there was some generational curse at work that he would be blind. But Jesus says, neither, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. So the purpose of that blindness, there was a purpose for it, that God could work in and through his life, that God's works could be revealed in him. So blind for a purpose, so God would work. And Jesus says, I'm going to do that work. And as long as I'm in the world, I will be the light of the world. While it's day, it's time to work and I'm going to shine. Jesus is the light of the world. And when Jesus was asked how to do the works of God, he boiled it down to one thing, really, in John 6, 29. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Now, he's talking to people who believed that they were doing good and honoring God by working to keep the Sabbath. And that's something that was always a point of contention between Jesus and the, well, it wasn't Jesus' fault or problem. It was the Pharisees and the scribes who had took issue with Jesus breaking the Sabbath by healing people, by letting his disciples eat on that day uh, because they were walking through the grain fields and taking some grain and rubbing it. Like you're harvesting, you're threshing, you're, oh, this is so wrong. You're breaking the law. You're breaking our rules. They deemed it work, but they didn't realize that God sanctified the Sabbath for the benefit of man, for animals and the land. That man was not created to serve the Sabbath. Man was created to serve God. The New Testament shows the Sabbath is holy because it points to Jesus who is our rest. A day of physical rest is important for the body, but every day is a rest for our souls because of what Jesus has accomplished on Calvary. Because the law that condemned us as sinners was nailed to the cross with Christ. It was crucified by the power of the gospel. And so Paul wrote this in Colossians 2, 16 and 17. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So the Sabbath, it was instituted and blessed by God to foreshadow what Jesus would accomplish and who he is as our rest. He is our rest. So we serve him in believing him. That's how to do the work of God, to be obeying him rather than serving a day according to the law. And this is the beauty of studying through Genesis with an understanding what Jesus has accomplished in the New Testament. All he is and all he has done. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So he says, come to me, take my yoke. And yoke is work, right? The yoke is something you would put on a beast of burden to pull a cart or pull a, a plow But Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and find rest for your souls today, every day that we have rest for our souls in him. True rest is not just the cessation of labor, some R and R, but the work of trusting God and serving him because Jesus will empower and help us along. He'll guide and lead us every step. So God's rest isn't just for one day a week. We see that confirmed that notice the seventh day isn't Measured like the other days where it says evening and morning were the fifth day, evening and morning were the sixth day. It doesn't say that for the seventh day. 
because God's rest is an eternal rest. It's a continual rest. It's a rest that does not end when we abide in Christ. The writer of Hebrews, he makes it clear that the first people to whom this was preached, they had a rest that they did not enter into because of unbelief. By God's hand, Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea, right to the cusp of the promised land, but they refused to enter in. It seemed too difficult. It was too dangerous. They were thinking about going back to Egypt. But when Moses said, you cannot enter in, they go, well, we're going in and we're going to fight on our own terms to get in. And they failed, right? They failed to enter that rest. And when Joshua, after he led them in, there remained a rest for them, it says in Hebrews, that there was still rest for them that they had yet to enter into, though they had the land, though the enemies had been driven out though they had settled and established in Israel. And this can really illustrate the condition of Christians today, that Jesus has promised us rest. We have entered into him. We have been born again by faith in him. But we're troubled because it's not settled in our hearts, because unbelief has hindered us from trusting him and believing what he said. We can labor to enter into God's rest or to earn God's rest when it's only received by faith in Christ, by receiving his gift. And we can strive to save others or to change others or their hearts when only God can do that. And so we find ourselves troubled and not at rest. We find ourselves burdened without hope because we have yet to enter in today to that rest. So we can enter into it theoretically but it's something that we choose to enter in through faith in him now. Taking that step of faith and obedience to him. Hebrews 4, 9 through 11 says, There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. Lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. So this points out another area where we fall short of the rest that God gives us through Christ by disobedience, by us trying to work to serve God without fully surrendering to him in trust and obedience. And he enables us to stand. He enables us to find rest. He, he is offering us rest. So if you're laboring, if you are without rest and you just say, I just need rest. I need time away. Well, use the time he's given you to draw near to him. Rest in him. That is the beginning of really that secret being unfolded to you in reality. Where you're like, I know what this rest is like now because I know God and I trust him. And he's so faithful. Genesis 2, 4. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils, the breath of life and man became a living being. God provides the history of how he created the heavens and the earth. It's not a fairy tale or a fable. It's history in a nutshell before nuts existed. We see that God is older than the hills and the trees, though he's eternal and thus ageless. 
He alone has authority to tell us how things were because none of us were there. Nobody alive today, of course, was there to see it. This was all before the flood as well. So if you had been through the flood, you'd still have to have lived thousands of years before that. So he's saying there were no plants before God created them. There was nothing to till or to, to cultivate until God caused the plants to grow. Without God's wisdom to give life, the earth would be as barren as the moon. And we're told too that the, the water cycle we witness today, where you have the evaporation and then condensation into clouds and then falling as rainfall, uh, precipitation as rainfall, that was not how things were in the pre-flood days. That there was a mist that went up from the earth and watered everything. And in this second chapter, we see a repetition of the Lord God. And that's going to be something we'll see throughout the whole book of Genesis, where now it's gone from Elohim to Yahweh or Jehovah Elohim. So it's like the proper name of God, the Lord God, the supreme, um, uncreated, eternal, almighty God who revealed himself to Abraham, the one who called the children of Israel, the one who formed man out of the dust of ground and breathed into him the breath of life, the one who made a covenant with his people. And it says he breathed into him the breath of life. Man became a living being or soul. Sculptors take clay and they fashion it into an image. Potters take clay and they form it with these shapes and patterns and colors. And think about how many artists find their uh, inspiration in nature. Where they look on a landscape or they draw a picture of the human form or that this is where they, they really think about like they're, they're amazed and they like can create things that really I marvel over. There was a video I saw. It was 30 artists taking pottery to the next level. And you're just seeing this. You're going, wow, that looks so human or that looks so amazing. Like why would you even think to integrate those things together? And I'm just blown away by the artistry and creativity of people and the things they can produce. And the first comment on the video, it said, I'm glad these artists are being recognized for their hard work. Their pieces are beautiful. They recognize that it's actually work that's being done and it's a beautiful result. And we say so because it's nothing like I can make. That's why it impresses me, right? But if a potter can do something that blows your mind, if a painter, if a sculptor can make something that looks so hyper-realistic, and the reason it's amazing is because it's so much like the real thing, but it's not the real thing. That's what's amazing to us. How much glory should we give God for what he has made that we take for granted our own bodies and the things we behold in nature that he has created by his wisdom. Give him his due. Let God blow your mind. And when you see those leaves and the symmetry and the colors and the fragrances and the flavors, just go, God, only he could do this. Only he could cause this to grow and imagine this because it never entered into my mind. I don't even know how he could do that. And if we say that about a sculptor or a makeup artist, God, who created that person, who gave them that skill, he, he is the one who is worthy. Genesis 2 verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the first which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hidakel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Now we read of this garden eastward in Eden, where God put the man he had formed. Eden, it means pleasure, luxury, delight. Personally, I've never had this impression by anything I have planted or cultivated. I'm just putting that out there right now. Um, I, I wouldn't go into my backyard and say, this is a veritable Eden. No, nothing idyllic about it. It's like pretty much a barren wasteland that only by the God, grace of God, things grow. <laughs> if I have anything to do with it. So Eden, it was situ situated in this ideal location. It's like, you've got these fer this fertile valley. You've got these rivers branching from one head, these four rivers. It's got gold, dillium and onyx. In the book of Jonah, we know that God caused that vine to grow overnight and it was big enough to shade his head. So in a, in a day, this vine is fully mature and grown. And the next day he caused that worm to eat it and it, it withered away. So when God plants something, it can grow in a moment. It can just be, it doesn't need to be in the ground for months and then germinate. It's like, it's there. He created it. Every tree pleasant for sight and food. He grew in this garden and this garden's location is unknown to us. As we'll see, and there's two trees that have never grown in your garden, as luxurious as it might be, the tree of life in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Years ago, my family and I, we enjoyed a trip to Queenstown in New Zealand, and we enjoyed taking a stroll through the botanical gardens and all these trees were there and they had these little signs that said a little story about them. You're like, okay, that's the, you know, the monkey tree and some trees I'd never heard of before. And I imagine... God taking Adam through the garden and explaining the different fruits and, and trees and vegetables and the things there and how to care for them. And, and you think about Adam, he didn't grow as a child eating cut fruit and learning how trees grow as a little child. I mean, everything was like a shocking revelation from God who explained things to him. And he's seeing these brilliant colors and these, these smells and, flavors and just the differences between all the trees all together in one place, not a bad apple among them. God breathed life into Adam and they have this conversation. They have this companionship. Now the location of Eden, it's very specific here. And because of this, we cannot say exactly where it is. Um, and one unique aspect of Christianity is that the Bible speaks of divine truths that are grounded in a real world, the world that we're living in. It doesn't, we don't hear these passages of scripture beginning with once upon a time or uh, like a science fiction film that says a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? It, we don't have anything like that. It's in the back of your Bibles, we see actual maps, Maps of places that you can actually go to today. Um, places like Bethlehem and Egypt and Jericho. And it's grounded in what we know. 
It's not like a mythical Tolkien universe or a fictional Marvel universe that's set in New York, but you go to New York and there's no Stark Tower and there never has been one. Okay, this is grounded in reality. What we're reading right here, this is the history of the heavens and the earth. Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee, these are places you can visit. Now Moses, he describes a river that was split into four. It's not found in the Fertile Crescent or really anywhere today. The rivers Pishon and Gihon, they're unknown to us. We have heard of the Tigris, which is Hittichel here, and the Euphrates. There's a spring of water in Jerusalem that's called the Gihon Spring. But it's not close to where the Tigris or the Euphrates go. So we see that how geography is now is different to pre-flood. That there was, there were, it was arranged differently than it is now. And you may think, well, why would they call the Tigris and the Euphrates as they did? Well, God or Moses knew them of those names because the people, likely Noah, when he had been there before the flood, then after the flood in that region that was similar, they just named those rivers after those rivers that were there previously. But the other ones didn't exist. They weren't there anymore. It's kind of like when people have come to Australia from England we see that there are English suburbs and English street names based upon where they came from. And they name them the same here. So all that to say, ancient Kush, it's in the southern Egypt, northern Sudan, ancient Assyria, way further north. So these are real places, but they're not in the arrangement precisely as is written here. And so for that, we don't really know where Eden is. We, we know a place that's better than Eden because we have fellowship with Christ who is altogether delightful, who gives us rest for our souls, our good shepherd. Genesis 2 verse 15, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man saying of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God, the Lord God took Adam, he put him in the garden, not just so that he'd be fed or well looked after, but for him to tend and to keep, he put him to work in that garden. He was to toil in service, he was to keep watch over it, he was to tend it. Leopold writes in his exposition of Genesis, the ideal state of sinless man is not one of indolence without responsibility. Work and duty belong to the perfect state. Work and duty belong to the perfect state. I think that's so powerful and true. That work is not a result of the fall. God worked in creating the world. God put Adam to work to tend that garden. For some people, opportunity and ability to do work, it's a necessary evil to be avoided rather than an opportunity to celebrate God by doing it. And even when you retire, you're not hindered from doing good work for the Lord. Because work isn't just how you make money. Because that's what we can think too. Like, oh, I, I'm going to work. I'm going to a place where I will be paid for my service. But work goes beyond that. Work is choosing to believe God and to choose to do his will. To seek him. That's work. That's good, profitable work. Titus 3, 1 and 2, it says, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work 
to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Think about those good works listed here. It's not talking about being profitable for the corporation or, or having an increased net worth. It's speak evil of no one, be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Those are good works. That's what God's called us to do. That's the works that he's prepared beforehand for us to enter into. Believing him, trusting him. When you choose to, when he prompts you to say something or he prompts you to be quiet and to hold your tongue. That is a good work when it's done unto him. Jesus invited those who heard his voice to take his yoke upon them. God does a work in us through the Holy Spirit to guide and lead us into all truth and we are thus enabled to work unto him, whether we earn a wage, pay taxes, or hold our tongues. So the command, now, if you were commanding somebody to look after your garden, you would probably give them things along the lines of, okay, uh, don't worry about trimming anything, but this plant needs shade. If it's really hot, you need to probably water this one a little extra and, you know, make sure that there's no grubs that are getting on this vine and just knock those off and, like it's basically about watering, right? Like don't mess stuff up. <laughs> but the thing that God commands Adam has nothing to do with agriculture or being an arborist at all. He gives him a positive and a negative command to submit to his will. A command that involved good and evil, life and death, eating and not eating. He was welcome to eat of every tree of the garden without restriction indefinitely. There was no limits of how much he could eat or what he could eat. But the tree in knowledge of good and evil, he was not to eat of even one time. Don't eat of that tree. The day you do, you will surely die. And literally it's saying dying, you shall die. If you eat of that tree, Adam, his living soul would die, cut off from God. In due time, his body would die as well. God who breathed life into Adam, put him on a path of life. It allowed him to choose to leave that path, to go his own way, or to work in obedience to God, to obey him. So he could choose to leave this path of life where God had provided everything in an idyllic environment. So he could have every, all his needs met. But he also gave him freedom to leave it if he wanted to, to choose death rather than life. It could not be said that Adam was given freedom of choice unless there was an option to transgress or to go against what God said. There had to be a choice. Otherwise, he had, there was no, no opportunity for him to exert his will that God gave him because God had a will to create. Well, in Adam, was there a will to obey and to submit with that option to disobey an option to temptation was birthed. And perhaps you said, I wish that Adam hadn't eaten that fruit. Now, why would you say that? Well, we sometimes enjoy the blame game when it comes to sin. If we can deflect it from ourselves and shift it to someone else. And it suggests we hold Adam responsible for the consequences of sin. We see or have been, subject to because of our own sin. Or we can actually be blaming God for lovingly giving man a choice to either choose God or to not choose God. Both choices. There was only one possible way for Adam to sin and every reason not to, 
right? There's only one way. It was if he ate from that tree. There was nothing else that he could possibly do that was a sin because there was no command given about those other things. It was just, don't eat of this tree. The day you do, you will surely die. It wasn't like God starved him and said, don't eat from the only fruitful tree. This is the only way you can have life. So you either choose to, to satisfy your flesh or to obey me to the destruction of your flesh. No, he had everything, right? Everything that Adam needed for satisfaction and health and vitality was found in God who created him, who provided everything for him, who guided him. And the same is true for us. Adam was invited to eat of the tree of life. He was forbidden from eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and eating and not eating from that tree. It indicated if Adam did good in obeying God or did evil in disobeying God. And that's really sin defined in the simplest terms. Will we do what God has said or we will do what he has forbidden? It was possible for Adam to work six days a week and be at rest seven days a week in the will of God as he believed him and submitted to him by, by obedience. And through the revelation of Jesus Christ uh, and the gospel, we can be confident that God who's begun a good work in us will be faithful to complete it, that we have rest in Jesus now. And it's not just off at some faraway place. Like when I get to heaven, then I can rest. No, brother and sister, find rest in Jesus now. Find rest in him today because he offers that to you. He says, if you are laboring, if you are heavy laden, come unto me. Come to Jesus and find rest for your souls. Please turn in your Bibles to God's will for you. It's in Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Our confidence can be in so many things other than God and what he said. And may we be confident in God's will that he is working and he will bring it to pass in his good time. That he's begun this good work and he will complete it because he's faithful. Hebrews 13, verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. As someone born again through faith in Christ, we are his workmanship and we have this opportunity to work for the Lord because he is working in us. His work preceded our work, right? God worked to create us. God worked to save us. God worked to deliver and to forgive us and to extend his righteousness to us, to fill us with the spirit. And now he is working. And it's really a question of, will we submit to his work? Will we choose to believe and trust him? That's the place of fruitfulness. That's the place of blessing forevermore. And may we bless the Lord who created our lives to be a light in a dark place that we would be the signature of his love, his grace, his mercy, and compassion. People want to keep the Sabbath, but you know, our Sabbath, Jesus, he keeps us. 
The Sabbath day is a shadow of what Jesus is, the substance. He keeps us and we find rest in him. And there's no evening and morning in that day. This is the day the Lord has made and we can rejoice in him who has made it and he who has created us. And our job is to believe him, to look to him, trust and obey him. And it's only in Jesus that we can have true enduring rest for our souls. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a faithful God, that you have shown your power over creation to make all things as they are. And you also have given us the choice of whether we will follow you or not, whether we will believe or trust you or not, whether we will willingly enter into your rest or go our own way, fighting to earn it, fighting to keep it. Lord, I thank you that you are the faithful God that we can rely upon, the one who's given us life, love, and peace forever. And thank you that your peace, you do not take away from us. Your peace, you leave with us. And this rest that you offer, it is for us and for our children and all who look unto the Lord. Lord, I pray that we would believe your word and what you've said, that we would trust that as you've made the world, Jesus is making a place for us, that he is preparing a place where we can dwell together forever. And we look forward to that day. But as you tarry, Lord, as it's light now, as your light shines through us, we pray that we would work faithfully for you, that we would believe and honor and glorify your holy name, that we would rest in you, that we would enter into those good works that you prepared beforehand, how we should serve you. I thank you, Lord, that you are faithful, good and true. How awesome you are in your creation. In Jesus' name, amen.